Hi, everyone. This is Frank Fear, and thank you for listening to Under the Radar. Today, we're going to be talking about something that, at least from an historical perspective, isn't under the radar. It's uh, widely known and written about, at least in academic circles, historical circles, but it's something that I also think needs to be understood by the public at large. I label this episode a cautionary tale, what brazen political partisanship brought America. It's about the election of 1876 and what happened in its aftermath in 1877. And even though that is a long time ago, almost a century and a half, the lessons are critical for us today as we move toward election 2020. Because as you'll see, or at least as I assert, some of the factors, two of the factors that were very much in the picture back in 1876 and 77 are still very much with us today. The election of 1876 was arguably the most contentious presidential election in American history. Unresolved for months, it was finally settled in March 1877 after Democrats and Republicans struck a draconian bargain called the Compromise of 1877. Quote unquote, compromise is one way of putting it. An outrageous act is another. The parties put partisan interest before country and in the process dealt African-Americans a vicious blow. Hyperactive party politics and racial intolerance are as alive today as they were back then. So could America revisit history later this year? Well, while the 2020 script won't be written the same as it was a century and a half ago, there's no question that America could be in store for an historically tumultuous experience. But before getting into how and what can be done to avoid that happening, let's summarize the raucous experience known as the election of 1876 and the compromise of 1877. The election of 1876 wasn't resolved on election day because the vote was contested in three southern states, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, with one undecided electoral vote in Oregon. A total of 20 electoral votes were hanging in the balance, and electoral distribution would decide who would succeed Ulysses S. Grant Republican as President of the United States. The Republican nominee was Rutherford B. Hayes. He was Ohio's sitting governor. A dark horse candidate to win the Republican nomination, Hayes was in fifth place after the first ballot at the convention, and he didn't win the nomination until the seventh round of voting. On the other hand, Governor Samuel J. Tilden Democrat of New York, was the governor of the Empire State. He was the odds-on favorite to be the Democrats' choice, and he was also given a good shot at winning the White House. And it was a tight race. Tilden won 51% of the popular vote nationally, but not enough electoral votes to be declared the winner. So for months, quote-unquote dispute was the watchword of the day. 
In Oregon, where one electoral vote was up for grabs, Hayes won the popular vote by nearly 4%. But the South was a different story because it tilted heavily in Tilden's favor. And he delivered as expected, gathering the majority of votes, over 50%, in 13 Southern states, with a low of 54% in North Carolina to a high of 72% in Georgia. But the story was quite different in the three contested Southern states. There, Hayes won Florida and South Carolina by roughly 900 votes each. In those two states, 11 electoral votes were up for grabs. And Hayes' victory margin was wider in Louisiana, about 5,000 votes, with its eight electoral votes up for grabs. Congress decided to appoint an election commission comprised of five U.S. senators, five U.S. House members, and five members of the U.S. Supreme Court, 15 members in total to study the situation. The members voted eight to seven to award all 20 electoral votes to Hayes. With that, Hayes went from trailing Tilden in electoral votes, 184 to 165, to winning the electoral college by the slimmest of possible margins, one vote, 185 to 184. So in March 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes was sworn in as the 19th president of the United States. The question, of course, is whether Hanky Panky was involved in the election of 1876. And of that, there is no dispute. For example, more votes were counted in South Carolina than there were registered voters. And believe it or not, each party verified that its candidate had won the popular vote in those three contested Southern states, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. That said, voter fraud wasn't the primary factor. The compromise of 1877 was. How so? In exchange for securing the presidency, the Republicans gave Democrats something they wanted very badly, the end of Reconstruction. Championed by Republican-led federal administrations, Reconstruction, in other words, to reconstruct the Republic in the wake of the Civil War, was imposed on the South. But Southern states wanted to retake control of their affairs, unfettered by federal mandates and oversight when it came to the treatment of former slaves. The disputed 1876 election gave them leverage to do just that. Democrat leaders knew that Republicans valued retaining the White House more than they valued sustaining Reconstruction. The resulting quid pro quo had disastrous outcomes for African Americans who had been experiencing progress as a result of Reconstruction. In the wake of the Compromise of 1877, Southern legislators passed a series of laws requiring the separation of whites from persons of color on public transportation in schools, parks, restaurants, theaters, and other locations. Known as Jim Crow laws after a popular minstrel act developed in the antebellum years, 
desegregationist statutes governed life in the South through the middle of the next century. What were the political implications of what happened back then? Well, for an extended period of time, the South remained steadfastly blue. For example, 80 years later, in the election of 1956, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Republican, who was standing for re-election, beat Adlai Stevenson, the Democrat, by 15% nationally. That's a pretty good margin. And he carried, like carried, 41 of the then 48 states, except for seven states in the South. In the contentious 1960 election, contentious because of concerns about, at least on the part of some, uh, John F. Kennedy's Catholic affiliation, a victorious JFK won in nine Protestant-leaning Southern states. But by the election of 1968, Texas was the only Southern state in the blue column. What happened between 1956 and 1968? Well, just as in 1876, the answer is race. This time it was the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Those laws dismantled Jim Crow policies and prohibited racial discrimination in voting. As the New York Times reported 40 years ago, I quote, some of President Lyndon B. Johnson's advisors recall how Democrats rejoiced the thought that millions of grateful black voters would come flooding into the Democratic camp. But some advisors also remember that Mr. Johnson was warned that Southern whites would flee the party. And many did. As the publication The Economist describes it, it was the long goodbye. 35 years after those laws went to, into effect in the mid-60s, Al Gore, the Democrat, outpolled George Bush, the Republican, nationally in election 2000. But every Southern state went Republican. In 2008, in Barack Obama's initial win, only four Southern states went blue. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton won only one Southern state, Virginia, the home state of her running mate. There are at least two takeaways that I have with respect to what I've just described. First, race is a recurring theme in America's narrative, arguably America's number one resolved matter. Today, just turn on the television, open a newspaper, and you're likely to be seeing, reading a story about the issues associated with race in America. So I can only imagine what America would be like today if Reconstruction had continued. The tragedy is that it did not. Second, my second takeaway, is hyperactive party politics is another American storyline. The major political parties not only rule America's politics, but the country's political divide is deeper and broader than ever. Those takeaways left me wondering if we might be facing a political conundrum similar to what the country faced 150 years ago. So I was very interested to read what I consider to be a thoughtfully written piece by Eric Lash recently in The New Yorker. Lash chronicles a scenario playing effort 
undertaken by what's called the Transition Integrity Project. As part of the project, participants assumed roles as members of the Trump and Biden campaigns, state officials, and the media. After participating, one person told Lash, one of his big takeaways is the possibility that neither side will accept a loss. As participants worked through possible scenarios, they identified multiple states where the final call couldn't be made for more than a week following election day. The participants imagined Biden being encouraged to concede on election night because in-person election day returns favored Trump. Then they considered the possibility of the vote swinging toward Biden as absentee votes were counted. As scenario planning, playing continued, Lash says, the circumstances became more unsettled. He writes, and I quote, the team playing as the Trump campaign called on the Justice Department to use federal agents to secure voting sites and tried to enlist state Republican officials to stop the further counting of absentee ballots. The Biden team, on the other hand, called for every vote to be counted and urged its supporters to attend rallies calling for the same. Trump's people tried to federalize the National Guard and both parties sought to block or overturn results in key states. Flash continues, and again I quote, eventually North Carolina was declared for Biden, Florida was declared for Trump, which left Michigan as the deciding state. There, a rogue individual, quote unquote, destroyed ballots believed to be favorable to Biden, leaving Trump with a narrow lead. Michigan's Republican-led legislature certified Trump's victory, but the state's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, refused to accept the truth. She cited sabotage and sent a separate certification to Congress. When I shared the scenario playing outcomes with a friend of mine, she expressed flat-out despair, not only because the possible outcomes were draconian, but she also felt so helpless. I remember her telling me, you know, citizens will vote, Frank, but it's out of our hands after that. I thought about what she said for a few days and I called her back. And I said, you know, I thought about what you mentioned, what you told me, but what about before the election? What can we do before the election to reduce, reduce the prospects that those scenarios won't come true. And I said that because from my perspective, I'm seeing everyday people engaging in pre-election behavior that make onerous outcomes all the more likely. She was surprised by what I had to say. And so I said, okay, for evidence, just take a gander at your Facebook feed. Tell me if you find a lot of reasonable discussion about policy matters. It's limited. And consider the sources that are often used, dubious. In fact, on some days, I find it difficult to find more than a handful of thoughtful, well-informed, and reasonable posts. And even worse, otherwise reasonable people, people who would never engage in that kind of behavior outside of social media, eviscerate those who don't share their political proclivities. It's a raucous back and forth, almost as though the combatants are participating in a take no prisoners military operation. 
And you know, I told my friend, maybe they are. I see similar behavior on display in letters to the editor. I'm one of those who continues to read letters to the editor in a variety of newspapers, local, regional, and national. And there's obviously slanted coverage that dominates partisan news channels. She said, okay, I get what you're saying, but you're analyzing. What's the bottom line? And what can I do? What can we do? First of all, I said, okay, the bottom line for me is that everything I've just described serves as tinder for political parties. When people are so emotional, when they finger point, and when they basically engage in the kind of identity politics I've just described, it's Democrats or Republicans, all that does is emboldens the parties. So what, she said, okay, what can we do? And I said, we can focus, and you, and I said, you already are focusing on issues, issues that face the American people, issues that advance the public good. And we all know people like that. And she said, okay, I get it. And then she began to make a list of the ways in which she and others are engaged for the public good. For example, she said, one of my friends is passionate about the what he considers to be outside, outsized, outsized military spending. Way too much money for defense. Not enough money for social issues. We both talked about a friend. We have a mutual friend who's passionate about affordable rental housing. Another who's very keen on affordable child care. And we both know a whole bunch of friends and colleagues who are involved in electoral reform efforts statewide and nationally, things like opening up the primaries designed to limit the influence of political parties in American politics. It was a good conversation with her, something I think I needed. Maybe she did too. I can't speak to that. But I will say this. 1876 is a very long time ago, easily forgotten, something that may many people may think, well, that's history. It's not relevant for today. But after reading Lash's article, reading about the Compromise of 1877, learning more about the election of 1876, it's not that long ago at all. In fact, here we are, nearly a century and a half later, facing some of the same issues that America faced back then. What I hope is that we won't experience back to the future come November. Thank you so much for listening. This is Frank Fear. You're listening to Under the Radar. And as always, I hope our paths will cross again very, very soon. Music